afternoon. Really glad that you could make it here for week 13 of semester. Well done. Not only for getting to week 13, but for actually coming to the EU in your last week. It could, of course, just be sheer avoidance. You have many things that you really think you should be doing and you can't be bothered to do them. Sort of like that tidying of the room frenzy that always grips you during Stubak. But, of course, I'm sure with the wonderful people who are here, it's something much more worthy, something like really wanting to engage with God and hear what he has to say to us, things that are going to be of significance, not just for today, but maybe for all eternity. Anyway, I hope that's what it is that's grabbed you and brought you here today. So why don't I lead us in prayer as we get started. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to gather together to listen to what you have to say to us. We pray that today, Lord, you would give us willing hearts that not only will hear what you have to say, but respond with faith and obedience. We pray it for our salvation and for the sake of the Lord Jesus. Amen. It was the last lecture of semester. The lecturer was standing before us, cramming this information into our notes, into our minds before the exam because it was one of the, com- one of the sections of the syllabus that she just not covered. She's there standing up, throwing all this information at us. And she says just on the fly, the way through, oh, there's this great book that this person wrote. It'd be a really excellent thing to go away and read sometime. That's uh, a great classic of, uh, you know, in the field. You should go away and read it. And we're going, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, there was many more important things about this particular person, about who she was teaching us. Anyway, I thought there were lots of good reasons not to heed what she was saying. I'll tell you, first of all, she wasn't our regular lecturer. She was a guest lecturer. Our regular lecturer had been sick for a fair bit of the semester, but we knew that it was the regular lecturer who set the exam every year. And so, you know, whatever this guest lecturer said, even if in the very last lecture of the semester, it's not going to really be a good hint about where the exam's going to go. So, while we all heard what she had to say, None of us were particularly interested in heeding it. Yeah, thanks for that. A great book to read. I don't think I'm going to be spending my stew back reading that particular book. Ten days later, I turn up to the exam. Three-hour exam, five questions. Being the diligent, super diligent student that I was, I prepared exactly five topics for my five questions. Um, No, there were no guarantees that those topics would be there. That's just how you survive as a student. Well, in my case, that's how I survived anyway. I go in there, I've got five arrows in my uh, quiver and I turn over the paper. Unfortunately, only four of them were there, but that's another story. There was one on this particular guy. Now, I'd studied up on this particular guy that the lecturer had helpfully told us all about. I knew all the big issues in this person's life, all the big controversies he'd been involved with. I knew all the solutions and the wider issues... And the question was, according to this particular book that he wrote, and on the question went, it was the book she told us to read. She'd set the exam, not the regular lecturer. The regular lecturer, being so sick, hadn't been able to. Sometimes you have all sorts of good reasons for not heeding what's said. You hear it, but don't heed it. So that was sort of an interesting experience. I only had the five questions prepared, so I wrote a question anyway. I'd never read the book, didn't know what the guy said, but I wrote a question anyway. Somehow, under the grace of God, I passed that exam, but uh, not because of the brilliance of my answer, I suspect. Though sometimes when we um, 
decide to just hear and not heed, it has much more significant consequences. I came across this report just recently. Studies show that only one third of medicine takers follow the instructions on the label to the letter. One in three people get back to the letter. Astonishingly, one in three Americans never take any of their prescribed medication at all. One in three. Now you think, well, okay, maybe their situations aren't so serious. The report goes on. In America, 100,000 people die annually from problems related to prescription medications. 100,000 people die from hearing but not heeding, not following the instructions. 11% of all hospital administrations in America are due to patients improperly taking their medication. 11% of the people who go to hospital are there because they didn't take their medication properly, costing the nation an estimated oh, $15.2 billion US a year. Now, of course, doctors wouldn't be so crazy to hear but not heed. Well, unfortunately, no. The report goes on. Even doctors have trouble following doctors' orders. It turns out, in 1996, Stanford University professor asked a group of medical students to follow a two-week regime of taking pills. The researchers used electronic pill containers to monitor how well the medical students followed instructions. None of them did well enough to inspire much confidence. Only about 28% of the pills were taken as prescribed. Even doctors. See, actually, when you start to think about some of those statistics, what you realise is the difference between hearing and heeding, heeding where you not only hear what's said but then take it on board and actually respond in the way intended, the difference between hearing and heeding sometimes is a matter of whether you get healed or not. Hearing, heeding and being healed. You can see up on the board, the title for today's talk is God is powerful to provide and protect. But really the subtitle of this talk should be that the key to healing is not just hearing but heeding. The key to being healed is not just hearing but heeding. If you've been with us over this semester here at the EU Public Meetings, you'll know that we've been looking at this book of Exodus and we've been tracing through the journey of God's people, the Israelites, as the Lord brought them miraculously out of Egypt through the Red Sea last week we saw and they're on their way, we know, to Mount Sinai where they will worship the Lord, their God. The bit we're looking at today from chapters 15 to 18 is their journey. Their journey from the Red Sea through to Mount Sinai. Starts in chapter 15, verse 22, goes through to chapter 19, verse 2. That's where they reach Mount Sinai. And in particular, in these sort of chapters, there's five things that happen in this two-month period. It takes them two months to get from Red Sea to Mount Sinai. And there's five things that happen. Let me show you what they are. I apologise to everybody who's listening online. You can't see my wonderful drawings that are going to so entertain everybody who's here today and elucidate the text and really help... Oh, I'll just get on. <laughs> Here is an Israelite. <laughs> Don't tell me that he looks like a grasshopper, okay? <laughs> just you, you, I'm sure you can do much better, but 
Although he's got a beard, right? Grasshoppers don't have beards. Anyway. (laughs) Here is the Israelite kneeling down beside a body of water. It's at a place called Marah. At a place called Marah. This is chapter 15, verse 22 I'm looking at. The water at Marah is longed for because for three days the Israelites have been without any water as they left the Red Sea. No water. And they come to this place led by the Lord to Marah. And there's water there. Except the water is bitter. So bitter they can't drink it. Oh, the frustration. So they grumble against Moses, their leader, and complain they have nothing to drink. And Moses cries out to the Lord. The Lord shows Moses a particular tree which Moses casts into the water and then everyone goes, sweet, because the water becomes sweet at that particular point, right? And, okay, that bit I added to the text. Anyway, (laughs) so here is the Israelites spewing out the bitter water of Marah. (laughs) Then the Lord gives his people some instructions and then he leads them to another place, a place called Elim. And at Elim, so they move from there, with the instructions of the Lord given to a place called Elim and at Elim we read that there are 70 palm trees now that is not a bad palm tree you've got to to give me something for that Okay, 70 70 palm trees and 12 springs of water we're not told anything else really about Elim except that they camp there That's the first thing that happens in this two months of journey. Second thing that happens. They move on from Elim and they come to a place called the Desert of Sin. Now, we read Desert of Sin and we think, oh, that must be a bad place because it's got the word sin. But actually, it's got nothing to do whatsoever with sin, evil, wickedness. It's more to do the the name there with Mount Sinai, actually. It's a more related word to that, where they're going. Uh, It's nothing, don't, don't import what you understand sin to be. They're at this place called Desert of Sin. And what happens there? Well, I'll draw some pictures here. Here we are. This one you'll recognise. Look at that. Doesn't that make your mouth water? Oh. Now, that makes it a bit better. (laughs) What is it? It's not a chicken, it's a quail. Come on, you can tell the difference. That's quail. And then there's all this other stuff, white, flaky substance, all over the ground, called manna. They come to the desert of sin, they've got nothing to eat. So again, they grumble against Moses, and Moses says, why are you grumbling against me? When you grumble against me, you're grumbling against the Lord. Anyway, the Lord provides for them. He gives them meat at night. So a whole huge number of quail descend on the camp at night. So they've got all the meat they want to eat. And in the morning, there's a frost on the ground. And when the frost sort of evaporates, there's this white flaky substance. And they walk out and they go, manna! Not because they knew what it was, but because when you say manna in Hebrew, you, that's how you say, what is it? You know, so when you go home tonight and there's food on the table provided by a lovely relative, you go, what is it? You could say, manna! And that's what they did. Hence, that's what they called it forever after. They called it, what is it? Anyway, manna it was called. It's an amazing substance. Tasted like wafers made with honey. They could 
form it into bread, they could boil it, they could bake it, it's an astounding substance. And every day, every single day they're in the wilderness, not just for two months, but for 40 years, they come out and there is manna on the ground. This is how the Lord provides for them in their time in the wilderness. Manna on the ground every single day. Well, not quite every single day. It would appear for six days. And on the sixth day, there'd be a double portion. People would bring in twice as much. Because on the seventh day, there would be nothing on the ground. The Lord was providing not just manna to sustain his people, he was providing rest to sustain his people as well. It's the first time we come across the Sabbath day in the Old Testament. The Lord introduces the Sabbath day so they might rest and remember him and remember all that he's done for them. Now he gives them various instructions about these things and the Israelites are pretty hopeless at keeping it frankly. He says, every day just collect enough for that day. Don't try and store any up for the next day. You can trust me to provide for the next day. But some of the Israelites decide to store it up and of course the next day the bit they've stored has has, uh, rotted, it's fouled, it's got all sort of worms in it. So they don't trust the Lord. And some of the people decide on the Sabbath day that they will go out and get some more, even though there was a double portion the day before. And the stuff they kept on the sixth day, it wouldn't rot. Every other day it would, but on the sixth day, astoundingly, under God's provision, it wouldn't rot. And on the seventh day, they go out to gather more. Of course, there's none there. And the Lord is angry with them for not trusting him. So that's the second incident that happens, the quail and the manna. Third incident, they move on from here and again they come to a place called Rephidim. Rephidim, they're there and there's no water. No water whatsoever. So again they grumble. They grumble to Moses and Moses says, why are you grumbling to me? When you grumble to me you're not trusting the Lord. You're grumbling against the Lord. You're quarrelling with him even. And the Israelites get really upset at Rephidim and they start saying, is the Lord really amongst us or not? He's brought us out out of Egypt. He's brought us through the Red Sea. Okay, yes, he's providing manna for us every single day. But is he really amongst us? It's no wonder that the Lord called that testing him. Why are you testing me? By asking these sort of questions. In the middle of such astounding provision. So what happens here? Well, the Lord shows Moses a rock. Here it is, big rock. That doesn't say how the Lord showed it. Maybe because the Lord was leading the people in a cloud during the day with fire in it at night. Maybe the cloud sort of indicated to Moses where to go. But he says to Moses, take some of the elders of the people with you, some witnesses, to see who's doing the provision here. He indicates this particular rock and here's Moses. You can tell he's Moses because he's got a very distinguished looking beard and he also helpfully wears a big M on his shirt. (laughs) Here's Moses. And in his hand, he's holding the staff. And the staff, under the Lord's instruction, with the staff, he strikes the rock. And when he strikes the rock at this place of Rephidim, water gushes out for all the people. The place gets renamed, interestingly. It gets renamed Massa and Meribah. Two words which in Hebrew mean testing and quarrelling. That's the third incident that happens in this two-month journey. The fourth incident that happens. Seems like they're still there in Rephidim. And while they're in Rephidim, the Amalekites come out to make war against the Israelites. 
So here's the great army of the Amalekites. Okay, I'm getting a bit abstract here. <laughs> My abstract phase. And here are the Israelites. And the Amalekites come out to do, make war with the Israelites. Israelites are led by this guy, Joshua. <laughs> and what happens? Well, Moses goes up on a high mountain overlooking what's happening. And he stands up on top of the mountain. Here he is. With his M. He holds up his hands and holds aloft the same staff. And as long as he holds up his arms, the Israelites are victorious over the Amalekites. But he's an old guy, right? He's in his 80s. We know from earlier he was 80 years old when he turned up in front of Pharaoh for the first time. And so when his arms fail and his arms come down, then the Amalekites start to win. So he has two helpers there who hold up his arms for him. I won't draw them because that would clutter my lovely drawing there and <laughs> it may be a bit beyond my ability. Um, and so what we learn here is that the Lord is still providing for his people, isn't he? He's now providing protection from their enemies in this journey from the Red Sea to Sinai. And then we come to the final incident. Moses gets a visitor. Moses gets a visitor. Here's Moses. I don't want him to look too grumpy. But Moses now is sitting down. He's sitting on a rock because they didn't have deck chairs. And uh, he's looking a bit thoughtful. See, he's holding his chin, thinking. Why is he thinking? Because he's had a visit from this guy who has an unusually large head <laughs> who's wearing a big J on his front. Now, that's, I know you're all being to Sunday school, but that's not Jesus, okay? <laughs> it's not actually Jesus. There are other people in the Bible whose name starts with J. This guy's an old guy, not as much hair. So he carries a walking stick with him. This guy's Jethro. It's Moses' father-in-law. Earlier on, we're not told exactly when, Moses sent his wife Zipporah and his two sons back to his father-in-law Jethro. We're not told. Maybe it was when things were getting a bit hairy in Egypt. We're not really told when it happened. But we know at this particular point, Jethro comes back out to meet Moses, bringing with him his daughter, Moses' wife Zipporah, and their two children. And Jethro rejoices in all the wonderful things that the Lord has done for his people through Moses. And then Jethro spends a day with Moses. And it was a pretty busy day for Moses, according to the text that you read there in chapter 18. From morning till night, all the people would come to Moses. And they would come to Moses asking him stuff. Moses, what should I do in this situation? Moses, how do we resolve this dilemma? What do we do about this, Moses? And all day he was just he just stayed there and the people kept coming and he would just field questions all day. And Jethro watched all this and he said, Moses, you're not going to be able to sustain this. You're going to wear yourself out and all the people, presumably, who have to wait for you all the time. So what you should do is this. So Jethro uh, pulls out his portable whiteboard and his little data projector here and he makes a presentation to Moses. And he says, Moses, this is what you ought to do. 
What you should do is you've got to have a system of delegated responsibility and authority. So you should appoint people who would be in charge of thousands and then people in charge of hundreds and people in charge of fifties and tens. And you need to teach all the people, Moses, because you're the prophet from God and you're the one that God reveals himself to. So you teach all the people, but you delegate your responsibility for deciding these disputes to these other people. And so if they've got an issue, they can go to the one in charge of their ten and that can be sorted out. But the difficult cases can be bumped up the chain and the most difficult cases of all can come to you. That sounds like pretty good advice from Jethro, doesn't it? Mind you, in the story so far, who does the providing? It's the Lord, isn't it? And even here, where it looks like Jethro is now providing the answer, very interestingly, Jethro says at one point in the account, he says, if you do this and God so commands, it'll be really good. Even Jethro understands that in the end it's the Lord who's in control of his people. So even there you can see the Lord is providing now for the community life of his people. He's ordering the community life, albeit through the suggestion, the insight from Moses' father-in-law. What do you know? The old man had a great idea and the Lord took it up and used it to bless his people. They're the five incidents that happen on the way through in this two-month period. Five incidents between the Red Sea and Mount Sinai. Well, notice there, there were a couple of key things we noticed, some common features in these, which we're going to try and draw together in a sec. Just point these out. One of the things you might hopefully got out of that sort of quick survey of those chapters is that Israel, unfortunately, often was testing the Lord. They were grumbling against the Lord. They did it at Marah, the very first place. They did it in the desert of Sin with the manna and the quail. They did it at Marabah where the uh, water came from the rock. They kept grumbling against Moses which really was grumbling against the Lord. The other common feature we noticed right throughout those accounts was that the Lord was actually testing Israel. Now you may not have picked this up but if you've read ahead in these chapters you'll know in chapter 15 verse 22 we're told that the Lord is going to test the Lord is going to test Israel and also in chapter 16 verse 4 in the desert of sin the Lord gives commands to test Israel. We're going to think more about that in a moment. The other common feature that's throughout these stories is as I pointed out the Lord's generous and gracious provision for his people even when they're testing him, even when they're grumbling against him. He still generously provides for them. He made the bitter water sweet, he provided the manna and the quail, the water from the rock, he provided the Sabbath for their rest he provided protection from the enemies and he provided judges to regulate the community life, to provide order and wisdom within the community life. Well, what ties these five incidents together? How really can you make sense of it all? You could pick up the theme of God's provision, but it's interestingly, when you read what other people say about all these stories, you know the one that's passed over the quickest? It's the first one. The first incident usually gets the least treatment. I mean, you're not told a lot. There's a bit of water, they cry out, the tree gets thrown in, the waters go sweet, and then they give some instructions, and then they move on to Elib. That's all there is. I want to suggest to you, actually, that this incident is key. This first incident is key to actually understanding the rest. In fact, it's not just key for understanding these five incidents in this two-month period. 
I want to suggest to you that this first incident is a very deliberate object lesson from the Lord God that explains what's going to be happening over the next, in the end, 40 years of their time in the wilderness. I don't know if you're familiar with the book of Judges. In the book of Judges, there's a whole lot of different judges that the Lord raises up to rule his people Israel when they make it into the land of Canaan. And there's a whole lot of different judges and you know in some ways the key judge? The key judge is the first one, Othniel. And he's the one who's spoken about the least. He's got just a short number of verses, one paragraph really, about Othniel, the first judge. But you know what? In that first incident, that first judge, you learn a lot about the judges. And a pattern is established with this first judge that then you see replayed in all the rest. Now, this is widely understood by those who you know, sat down and really tried, sought to understand the book of Judges. I suggest a similar thing is happening here in the Exodus, in this wilderness time. The first incident is the key to understanding the rest. How so? Well, I think what this incident does is it sets up a choice. It sets up a choice, a fundamental choice for God's people. Let me try to explain it to you. Let's think about what happens in this first incident. Chapter 15, starting at verse 22 there. First of all, God's people come to this place, Marah. He leads them there, right? To Marah, where there is this undrinkable water. The water is bitter. They can't drink it. Now, memory test. I know that you've probably dropped everything out of your mind because it's week 13 and you're frantically cramming astrophysics or ancient English literature or whatever else you cram into your brains at this time of year, but I want you to try to remember something we've actually done in the EU. I know, that's way too much to ask, but try. (laughs) Can you think of any time in the book of Exodus to date where people weren't able to drink the water? Go on, be bold. Think of it. Someone who hasn't been here this week already. Egypt? Egypt? Whereabouts in Egypt? The first plague in Egypt. The first plague in Egypt was where all the water of Egypt was turned into blood. And twice we were told in that story that they couldn't drink the water. They could not drink the water. Now the Lord takes his own people out of Egypt through the Red Sea, he saved them and he takes them to a place where they can't drink the water. He's starting an object lesson. What's he trying to teach them? He then gets the tree thrown in and the water becomes good. They can drink it. He heals the water. What's he trying to teach them? It becomes clear in what he says. His words explicate the situation. Here's what he says in, after making the water sweet. Chapter 15, verse 26. There the Lord made a decree and a law for them and there he tested them. He said, If you listen carefully to the voice of the Lord your God and do what's right in his eyes, if you pay careful attention to his commands and keep all his decrees... I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians for I am the Lord who heals you. He's just brought them to a place that he's meant to remind them of the very first plague that came on the Egyptians. A place where they can't drink the water. He says, if you heed my word, if you don't just hear it but if you actually take it in and respond positively to it, then I won't bring on you any of the stuff that happened on the Egyptians. Because that was the Egyptians' problem, wasn't it? They didn't respond positively to the Lord. And look what happened to them. So he says to his own people, listen carefully to my voice, 
pay attention or in other words heed what I have to say and I won't bring these judgments upon you. But on the other hand I will heal you. That's what he'll do instead. Just like he's healed their situation here with a bit of water. He's made it sweet. So I think what there is here is a choice. There's a reminder to his people now that they've been saved don't fall back into the Egyptian problem. Don't only listen to what God has to say but you've got to heed it. You've got to take it in and respond positively to it. And then to give some substance to this some sort of I guess extra, extra meaning or, or, or texture what does it mean that God's going to heal his people? He takes them to this place, Elim. And Elim is in symbolic, symbolically represents what it means to be healed. What do I mean? Well, at Elim, there were 12 springs and 70 palm trees. Now, Elim is not mentioned very often in the Bible. The only other place I could find was in Numbers 33, which is sort of right at the end of their wilderness wanderings. And there's a bit of a travelogue there. They just list all the places that they went in their wanderings. And it's just place name after place name. There they camped there, there they camped there, there they camped there. Except that at Elim, it says, and they came to Elim where there were 12 springs and 70 palm trees and they camped there. And they went there and then there. What? Why these random geographical facts? Why throw this in? Why mention it a second time in Numbers 33 when you're being really terse? Because there's significance in the numbers. What's the significance? Go right back to the beginning of Exodus. Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1, the first five verses, tells you the significance of these numbers. Exodus starts, And these are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family. And then it lists the twelve tribes, the twelve sons of Israel. Then verse 5, the descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. 12 and 70. Symbolically represent when they get to the place of limb. What's that about? Okay, so we see that they're significant. But what does, what does it mean? What does it mean? I think what it means is God is saying, you keep my instructions, I'll heal you. What does healing look like? I will keep my promises made to the 12 and to the 70. But yes, you went into Egypt, but I always promised I'd bring you out and take you to the promised land where you live in the land of my blessing with all of my generous provisions. It's fleshing out what it means to be healed, to live long in the blessing of God. So that's their choice. Marah or Elim. Refusing the word of God or heeding the word of God. That's their choice. Now, there's other thing just worth noting here before we move on from this key verse today in chapter 15, verse 26, is notice what the Lord was doing. It's right there at the, uh, the end of verse 25, actually. There the Lord made a decree and a law for them and there he tested them. What he's doing here at Marah and what he's going to do throughout the next 40 years is he's testing his people and he tests them by giving a command. See, when you get a command from God, it has two functions, it does two things. The Lord has saved his people out of Egypt and now he gives them commands to tell them how to live as the saved people of God. You've been saved, 
how do you respond? How do I live as the saved people of God? Well, here's my command, says the Lord. It teaches them how to live as the saved people of God. But at the same time, when you give that sort of command, it has a flip side to it. That is, how you respond to that command reveals your heart, right? He said, I've saved you. Here's how to live as my saved people. If you go, ah, uh, no thanks. Or you can go, yes, fantastic. Do you see that the command actually tests you? The giving of the command in your response is a test. And what the Lord is doing here at Marah is he makes a decree, a law for them, and thereby he tests them. He tests his people. And that's what he's going to do for the next 40 years when he gives commands. He's testing them to see, will they listen? And the command he gives here really is the meta-command. The command that covers all commands. If you have actually look at there on the screen in front of you or in your Bible, it's the command about keeping the commands. Hence, I call it the meta-command. If you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, then this and that. It's the command about being obedient to his commands. So that's why I think this sets up everything is to follow because in the next 40 years they're going to get lots of different commands that tell them how to live as the saved people of God and that function to test their hearts. But here, right at the beginning, he gives one command. Obey my commands. That's the test. Now, if you want to have this sort of idea confirmed that this is what the wilderness is about, you can fast forward through to the end of their wilderness time. So if you've got your Bible there, flick with me to Deuteronomy 8. Deuteronomy 8. Deuteronomy 8, they're now standing on the edge of the promised land. They've been in the wilderness 40 years. Moses preaches three sermons recorded for us here in Deuteronomy. Here's part of one of them. Moses says, chapter 8 of Deuteronomy, verse 1. Be careful to follow every command I'm giving you today so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land that the Lord promised on oath to your forefathers. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to do what? To humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Two things there just to point out to you. Verse 2 is the point that we've already noted. The point of the wilderness time was that the Lord was testing their hearts through the giving of his commands to see if they'd obey him. And verse 3 is interesting. He says that the Lord has been humbling you. He's been deliberately making his people hungry and then feeding them with manna. Not to teach them that, frankly, when it comes to food in your fridge at home, you've got to trust the Lord. That's not the big point. He's teaching them dependence when it comes to something as basic and as essential on a day-to-day basis as food so that they might understand their complete dependence on him for everything. That a human being doesn't live just on bread alone. We live on every word that comes from God. His commands, see, lead to healing. His commands lead to life. That's what his commands do. Well, you've stayed with me all of that time. Well done. What about for us? Let's get practical. Well, two things here. I think the first point is this. The word of God 
brings healing and life. We saw that there in the Exodus. God's words were meant to bring healing and life as people heeded them and responded positively to them. But one of the things, as I've said before in this series, when looking at the Old Testament, if you want to know how's this Old Testament going to apply to us today, you've always got to be thinking in two categories, two categories of continuity and discontinuity. What's the same in their situation and ours, but also take careful note of what's different because there is a lot that's different. One of the things that I think is the same today is this principle, this truth, that the Word of God brings healing and life. Where can I go to find that? To see that's continuous from their situation to ours? Well, you can go to the Lord Jesus. That's a pretty good source. And uh, particularly John chapter 6. Now, there's lots of similarities, lots of resonances in John 6 from particularly this manna incident that we looked at in Exodus 16. But you can download a talk on John 6 from the EU website, so I'm not going to repeat that here. Just three things that Jesus says in that chapter, though, that make it clear to us that this same truth applies to your life today, that the Word of God can bring healing and life to you. What does Jesus say? John 6, 63. The words that I have spoken to you, he said, they are spirit and they are life. Jesus puts his own words on the same level as the words of the Lord God. My words will give you life. And as I mentioned, he ties himself into the manna in the desert and he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me, unlike those people in the wilderness, they will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me, unlike those people in the wilderness at the rock, they will never go thirsty. What does he mean by you'll never go hungry, you'll never go thirsty? That sounds pretty good. I no longer have to eat. I no longer have to drink because I've just got the Lord. No, what does he mean? Chapter 6, verse 54. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise them up at the last day. See, for the Israelites there in the wilderness, what did it mean that the Lord was going to bring healing to them? It meant that they would get into the land of Canaan, wouldn't it? And they would live long in the land that God was going to provide. Mind you, they were going to live long, but they weren't going to live forever. It was going to be, yes, the fulfilment of God's promises to Abraham, But if you go right back to the book of Genesis, it wasn't going to be the undoing of the curse of Genesis 3. It wasn't going to be the undoing of the problem of death. But what Jesus says, he says, no, actually, you come to me. The sort of healing, the sort of life I'm talking about, I'll raise you up from the grave. I'm talking about eternal life. The word of God that comes through Jesus Christ brings healing and life. It brings ultimate healing. Eternal healing. So I guess what that means is we need to heed it, don't we? Not just hear it, but heed it. If we want to have that eternal life, if we want to be raised up at the last day. And to that end I want to point to you just to one last one last practical point. I think, friends, it's time for a cardio checkup. It's time for us to check our hearts. And a useful passage to read here in this regard when it comes to heeding the Word of God is Hebrews chapter 3 and chapter 4, but particularly Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 to 14. Let me just read that to you. Hebrews 3, 12 to 14. The writer here is is drawing... He understands continuity and discontinuity, actually. The writer to the Hebrews 
under the inspiration of God, knows that Jesus is far greater than Moses was and Jesus has far greater promises as we've just seen than Moses did, yet he knows continuity too because he says, just like the Israelites had hard hearts at Massa and Meribah, so Christians today have to make sure they don't have hard hearts. And this is what he says, chapter 3, verse 12. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end the confidence we had at first. Three things that he points out in those three verses. The first one is, friends, as individuals, we need to beware of having an unbelieving heart. Don't have a hard heart. Don't hear the words of God, but don't heed them. I don't know how long you've spent listening to God's word explained. If you're Tim Robinson and you've spent 57 years in the EU, (laughs) you've heard a lot of EU public meetings. You've sat in a lot of EU small groups. Add to that all the years in church. You hear God's word all the time and you know what? If you turn up to God and say, but Lord, I've listened to 3,672 sermons. That's got to count for something. Patience, if nothing else. No, because what you hear has to be combined with faith for it to be of any value. That's what the writer of Hebrews goes on to say in chapter 4, verse 2. He says, For we also have had the gospel preached to us, just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them because those who heard it did not combine it with faith. You have to combine the message, what you hear, with trust, with obedience for it to be of value. Hearing has to change into heeding. So we need to examine our own hearts, but also not just our own hearts, we need to try to encourage each other not to be hardened. That's what he says there in Hebrews 3 verse 13. Encourage one another daily, it says, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. I think there's a challenge there for, may I say, our EU community life. Let's not just hear God's word there, Hebrews 3 verse 13, let's heed it. Encourage one another daily to not be hardened by sin's deceitfulness, to not have a hard heart, to respond positively to God's word. How are we going to do that together, brothers and sisters? Encourage each other to respond positively to God's word. I think it's going to mean at least three things. First of all, frankly, you and I have to care enough about each other that we'd even bother to do anything. See, because I think we've been so infected as Christians by our society that we are very, very individualistic. We think about me and the Lord. Rather than thinking about the Lord and his people of whom I'm a part. See, there's horizontal as well as vertical dimensions, isn't there? And so we're to encourage one another. That means that you've got to love and I've got to love one another enough to actually care, to actually do something. That's the first challenge. Second challenge then is to gently and graciously yet boldly say something. What happens if you see a sister or a brother in Christ who's not heeding the word of God? 
You can see their Christian life going off the rails. We have to boldly and graciously and gently say something, confront people, rebuke people if necessary. Not from superiority, not certainly not from arrogance, but out of love. And the third thing you've got to do is, if we're going to say something, you've got to be willing to hear it. So I think we have to humbly and graciously be prepared to be challenged, to be confronted. We have to encourage each other not to be hardened to sin. The final thing that he points out there is we have to hold firmly to the end. So don't worry, this isn't, you don't have to just heed God's word today. You don't have to take it and live it just today and tomorrow and next week. You don't have to do it just for the next year. You've only got to do it all the days of your life. Is that too hard for you? Well, without the Spirit of God, yes, it would be. God gives us His Spirit so that we can live for Him. He's given us one another so that we might encourage each other to not be hardened by sin, but to actually heed what God has to say. And He's given us that great hope of life eternal with Christ to keep us persevering to that final day. So don't be hearers of God's Word only, friends. Let's heed what he said because if we heed, there will be ultimate healing. So let me lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us the words of eternal life in Jesus, your Son. And we pray, Father, that we might heed what he has to say so that we might live with you for all eternity. In Jesus' name, Amen.